But I, remembering, pitied well, and I loved them who, with lonely light, in empty, infinite spaces dwell. Disconsolate for all the night, I heard the thin, gnat voices cry, star to faint star, across the sky. Den interplanetære podcasten. Utforskning av rom til fordel for hele menneskeheten. Dine vakter i England og Norge. Matthew Røsel og Chris Garni. Ah yes, did you did you used to watch Brookside? I did. I was also in Brookside. I, the stuff of legend is that I play the dead body, which it was one of those weird things where my agent initially said you're going to play the dead body of Clint, who was one of the characters who got killed. And when I arrived, I was actually playing somebody who walks past his girlfriend and looks a bit like Clint. So they misunderstood it. But I told like maybe a few people that I was doing the dead body and it just became folklore. Everybody would always say, did you play a dead, didn't you play a dead body on Brookside? And I'd try and explain. And then eventually I just, I started just going, yeah. So I was, and my first ever extra job was on Brookside. And that's when I discovered that um, in the early days of being in front of camera, as soon as someone shouted action, my entire neck would freeze up. <laughs> Your neck? Yeah, my whole neck and my shoulders would go is that, up. And is, it, <laughs> is, that why, is that why they wanted you to play a dead body? That was it, because my acting was so <laughs> stiff. Oh, wow. I didn't know you were in Brookside, just in case r- listeners thought that that was a big setup. No, no, no. Yeah, that's a. I mean, that's another mm-hmm. lifetime. That one, though, Matthew. I was, a, you know, being an extra, and then you eventually you you have to stop being an extra because you won't get considered for roles if you're appearing in the the show too much. But it did give me a good industry knowledge, and then I, I you know, I started auditioning for it. I never got a part, but you know, I did a few bit parts here and there. Dead body was the most famous one, though. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, that that's very good, but. Um, it's got nothing to do with Brookside, Rupert Brook. He's actually an English war poet. Mm. Do, do you know how the Irish poet W.B. Yeats described him? Was it Yeats? Is it W.B. Yeats? Or it's Yeats. Yeats. W.B. Yeats. Hardy Yeats. W.B. Yeats. He described him as the handsomest young man in England. Ooh. Imagine, Imagine that, that, the handsomest. Yeah. But you weren't born yet, though, Matt. No, I was nowhere near born at that point. That's why. <laughs> um, <laughs> did you hear that line, I heard the thin gnat voices cry? Yes. I, what, what's ironic about that is Rupert Brooke died of a mosquito bite getting infected. Oh, my. While he was in the Navy. So prophetic. Why the heck are we talking about Rupert Brooke and, and this poem? And oh yeah. The poem appears in a book that we'll talk about later on, but it's um it's a poem about the outward urge. Oh. I've had a few of them. Is the desire to travel <laughs> further into space. The oh, outward it's that. Okay. urge. Uh, yeah, that, that, that I haven't had that. You must have had the outward urge. You used to get an occasional one in class, you know, when the teacher used to get you to to go to the blackboard. You always seem to have an outward urge at that moment. Oh, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Or or when the cameras start rolling, your neck gets an outward urge. (laughs) Oh, So, do you know what's special about this month? Well, Matt, it's the life on Mars. It is Mars month. Because, of course, do you know where? Uh, do you know what planet uh, the month of March is named after? Saturn. 
<laughs> yes, correct. <laughs> Pluto. No, <laughs> it's, it's of course. Both March and Mars are both named after the god of war. Mm, one of my favourite gods. March, of course, was the start of the war season. Which I sort of thought was quite weird that there's a season for <laughs> That's it. That's great. Yeah. Oh, it's about time for war, isn't it? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah war yeah, season. Yeah. Yeah. I hope yeah, yeah. War season comes early this year. I've just bought some new armor. <laughs> Warmer armor. Got <laughs> 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 to start the season earlier yeah, and yeah. finish later. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've got. Ah, uh, before we start um, Mars Month, which of course joins uh, Women's History Month and. Uh, National Nutrition Month in Canada. Yeah. Before we start Mars Month, um, uh, just want to tell you that uh, the interview today is with none other than Mr. Eric Berger, yeah. who, uh, as I told Eric, is is our most popular popular guest by quite a country mile. He um, people love him. Because we love him. I think. I think Eric is Mr. Newspace. He's Mr. Newspace, isn't he? He's he's the person that people turn to to hear about what the heck's happening with Elon Musk. And um, he's written a book called Liftoff, and that's the reason why I spoke to him. But I spoke to him a little bit about Mars as well and how we're going to get there, which, of course, involves pretty much SpaceX. So it's out this week in all good bookshops, Eric Berger's Liftoff. I'm almost at the end myself. It's a rip, roaring greed. Do you know and, if it's available um, on the Audible? It is. Fantastic. Eric goes into this. Eric has has chosen someone to uh, do his or the audible version. Yeah, so that it will be available because Eric himself is a Mister is a Mister Audible, just like myself. So that's that's great news. Yes, I, I am. It's helped me to, to actually. Version. Well, it's actually helped it. me because I just don't read books anymore. It's terrible. Like I'm sure there's a few uh, people out there who will uh, who will also you know empathise. Like my brain does not have the capacity to pick up a book anymore. So audiobooks have saved my reading career. Uh, hobby. Yeah. Well, uh, I actually find Audible books. Harder to follow than than when I'm reading, if I'm honest, particularly nonfiction. But the reason why I love aud- aud- audio books is because I spend up to five thousand hours a week looking at Zoom these yeah. days. And if I'm not looking at Zoom, I'm looking at some editing screen, editing down some piece of audio. Yeah, like this one. This particular um, one. So yeah, that's why I love audiobooks. Um, we 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 need to talk about Mars. We need to yeah. get on with this Mars nonsense. Otherwise, uh, yes, we, we won't have fulfilled Mars month. And we need to do that. Today's episode is 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 sort of about Mars and why we think about Mars as a, as this destination. And we'll finish off with all the missions that have been to Mars so far. Yeah, I thought it was a good place to start Mars month. So really. The beginning of of humans' kind of fascination with Mars as a place to go is wrapped up with two Percy's and a Chaparelli. Two Percy's and a Chaparelli walk into a bar. So it actually makes me think that Perseverance is actually a really good name because there's quite a lot of Percy's in this story. So levels, levels. I'm going to start. I'm going to start with Giovanni Virginio Chaparelli. Who was born in what month, do you think? I think it's an appropriate month that he was born. Yeah. 
Is it March? He's only born in March, isn't he, Schiaparelli? How appropriate is that? 14th, 1835. Mm. I think that he's the person that really does most to kickstart, you know, everyone's obsession with with Mars, really. And uh, so he studied at the University of Turin uh, and graduated in 1854, worked at Berlin Observatory, then the Pulkofo Observatory near St. Petersburg, but then worked for 40 years at the Brera Observatory in Milan. Uh, and it's there that he started mapping Mars, you know, and really sort of drawing Mars in, in detail yeah. and naming the Martian seas and continents with historical and mythological sources. And so he, he kind of brings it all alive. But the one word that he chose for sort of lines across the surface that he was seeing was canali, which means channels. You know, he, he could see these channels going across Mars and he was drawing them. Yeah. And of course, to the English-speaking world, what do you think canali ends uh, up getting um, translated well, into? They all thought it was full of gondolas, didn't they? <laughs> exactly. Aliens gondolizing down the canals. I think gondolizing is the correct I verb, think it is. Yeah, that's it? the verb. Yeah, to, to gondol. <laughs> to gondolize. <laughs> so, so, or is it punt? Or is that the Eng- English punt is the English for gondolize, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which, of course, canals implies that there's intelligent life, right? It's It's... Someone's building canals on Mars. But I don't know if it does say, you know, intelligent life, because there's a lot of canals in Birmingham. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that's a very good point, because the canals of Birmingham, of course, Birmingham really was the centre of modernity. The world's modernity started really in Birmingham, in in, in, in England. Yeah. You could make that case for it, you know. Um, even Benjamin Franklin used to visit to the uh, Moon Society. Hmm. Um, bear in mind that the Suez Canal had been built as well. And yeah. the Suez Canal was the great engineering project of the day. So to see these great engineering projects on Mars was definitely the zeitgeist yeah. as well. Yeah, and Schiaparelli went on to write a book in 1893 called La Vita sul Pianeta Marte. Pianeta Marte, which means life on Mars. Oh. I prefer the Italian pronunciation, though. Yeah, but I, I prefer the fair the I prefer the Bowie song. Like, so. yeah, I, you could probably work out how an Italian Bowie cover version might sound. Yeah, it'd be a bit of a longer. La vita uh, sal pianetormate. <laughs> <laughs> It works. Schiaparelli has made everyone sort of perk their ears up somewhat and everyone's, woo something's going on. But there's a Percy, there's a Percy over in America, born exactly 20 years after Schiaparelli, literally exactly 20 years. So what month was he born in? It must be the month of March. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Percy Lowell, not to be confused with Lovell, um, right. He, Percy Lowell 
he was born 20 years after Schiaparelli and he was a very rich businessman who was also extremely interested in astronomy and built the huge observatory in Flagstaff. It was one of the greatest observatories of greatest observatories of its day and it's still in use today and 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 um it was named in 2011 as one of the most important places on earth top top 100 by Whoa. time magazine Whoa. where did it come oh i don't know actually it's just in the top 100 maybe still, 99 yeah, yeah. even <laughs> even still. if it's 99 <laughs> even if it's 100 it's the top 100 you know, probably down to the fact that it discovered Pluto. But I think it's probably also to do with the canals as well, because Percy Lowell was obsessed with the canals and he mapped hundreds of them. Yeah. Making up the stories that these these straight lines were created by intelligent Martians to carry water from the polar caps down to the equatorial regions. That's what he was saying they were there for. Yeah. Uh, And a couple of years after Schiaparelli, he published his first book on Mars with loads of illustrations and all the canals. But one of the funny things is he was probably just drawing the veins in his own eyes. (laughs) Percy Lowell just basically ran with Schiaparelli's idea and made it even more of a thing. Schiaparelli himself never went down the canal thing. No, down the canal road. He thought that there was vegetation and stuff on Mars, but he never went down that they were canals. So Schiaparelli was did try to point out that what he meant was channels of you know maybe not even that deep, um, which may be where rivers ran, for example. Yeah, which of course he might not be wrong at all about that. So there's yet another Percy that then steps in here, which I think is which I think is probably really, really important. And I've never heard of this, and I don't know whether you have. There's a chap called Percy Gregg, and he wrote a book called Across the Zodiac. Have you ever heard of that? I have not heard of Across the Zodiac, no. Not only is it one of the very first books that talks about going to Mars and detail the flight to Mars, but it also talks about anti-gravity to get, you know as a as a as a method of getting there. Yeah, it's it's most famous because the spaceship itself is called the astronaut, and that uh. might be the very first use of the worst word astronaut. Wow. Okay, well, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm locked in now. I'm, I'm, I want to read this. Yeah, well, not only that. So it, d- it doesn't stop there. So it's also the, the the first book that really invents its own art language, which is which which the aliens speak, which is very similar to obviously what Star Wars did, Star Trek, I should say, did with Klingon, for example. It's it's like that. So it's one of the very first books to have a, a, its own art language. Art Lang, as it's called, yeah. but it also is considered the the first of the of the of these space novels called Sword and Planet, uh, which is a subgenre of sci-fi. Sword and Planet were very very popular books, and it often had sort of human like beings fighting with um, swords on an alien world. Um, with wizards and stuff like that. Now, what does that sound like to you? Might be a little bit like uh, something that happened in a, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. 
it really is influential because I often think, why have they got lightsabers in Star Wars? And I guess it's it's inherited this sword and planet subgenre. And I'd never ever knew that before. I'd I, I'd and certainly I'd never heard across the zodiac, and I'd not really made that that sort of lineage ever before. So imagine how important that book is. It, it uses the word astronaut. Yeah. It sets the stage for Star Wars. It sets the stage for bits of Star Trek. And it's one of the first books to really talk about going to Mars. Absolutely incredible. So do you think this could this could genuinely be in the libraries of, of the likes of Lucas and um, the Star Trek creators? Oh, I, that, that one must be, yeah. I think Percy Gregg's Across the Zodiac would definitely... I bet he's got. A, I bet Lucas has got a first edition. Yeah, It'd be very interesting to find that out. Actually, Definitely. whether Lucas ever talks about that particular book. But I thought we'd have a quick, um, a quick run through of some of these books that um, people were writing. They were so inspired, and really, these books. If you think about people like Carl Sagan, what actually, and, and Arthur C. Clarke, and people like that, what made them want to go into into science and go into space and out into the solar system and go to Mars. What what is it that made those people so interested? And it's these books. Yeah. So these books, you know, you know, they really influenced, you know, the the people that went out into space. Eventually, did go out and 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 send, you know, robots out into space. And some of them actually went. To, I guess you know, some of the people that went to the moon probably read these books. So I thought I'd read out some of the the big hitters. Yeah, go for it was very, very old, this uh, Percy Greggs. Um, a, a, quite a lot later, round about the time of Schiaparelli's book about um, Mars and vegetation and stuff, it's called A Plunge Into Space by Robert Cromie. Plunge. I like the word plunge. This is about a chap called Henry Barnett who, who learns how to combine electricity and gravity which permeates all material things, a bit like the Force, I suppose. And he builds a globular spaceship called the Steel Globe. <laughs> and, and, they tra- and they travel to Mars. Fantastic. And, um, yeah, where, where they have a free society. Yeah, a lot, of these, a lot of these Mars books get sort of intermingled as well with what's going on politically at the time. For example, Unveiling a Parallel by Alice jones and ella merchant so this was a a a, a 1893 a utopian feminist novel using mars as a kind of trope to get this 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 across and it it does actually look really fascinating what they've done it's it's a really fascinating insight about feminism from that era as well it's 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 really bizarre because they they travel and the the narrator who's nameless travels to Mars in an aeroplane. And um that's apparently one of the very first uses of the word aeroplane as well. It had wow. been used in 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 Fre- in the French, but never in the English. So yeah, it's one nice. of the first uses of the word aeroplane. And they 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 go to two different Mars societies where men and women are equal, but in different ways. So in one of them, the women have become uh, I've just basically adopted all the terrible things that men do, like go to prostitutes and stuff like that. And they've just basically just like men and behave why, why just should like men. Why should men have all the fun? Palaveria, the women all behave like uh, men. And, and so that's how they become evil. E- uh, evil, that's how they become equal. 
Well, I suppose it is a little bit evil. And in Kaskia, the other place, they have uh, gender equality because everyone is kind, loving, and generous to each other. Oh. And it's about, you know, which which of those two societies would, would you prefer? Uh, so, yeah, it's it's that's, that sounds pretty interesting, doesn't Very it? Very ahead of its time. Journey to Mars by Gustavus W. Pope is a very influential book as well so that and, and I love this the reason why the Mar- Martian can what you what you see aren't canals at all they're linear cities and the reason why they have lin- these thin thin cities is because they're being bombarded by meteors all the time and it makes them thinner targets right well, I like it. <laughs> so it's, it's really think I'm really not quite sure a lot of like sort of insight into you know so much thought goes into how the yeah. entire you know the, the entire form of the of the of the planet works and everything it's incredible <laughs> yeah it's a bit weird because presumably if the surface area of the of the city is the same yeah it's the chances are just as likely to get hit by meteors I don't really understand that so there we go have you ever heard of this book, though? Oh, uh, I don't know. You might not have done. The War of the Worlds da, da, by a da, chap called H.G. Wells. Da, 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 da. Yeah, I, you know, every time I do that, I sound like I'm doing the theme tune for 999. Remember that? <laughs> That's oh, it. yes. Da, da, da. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How ace is Richard Burton on that? Yeah, oh, incredible. Absolutely amazing. Oh, my gosh. I'd I'd get Richard Burton to narrate on anything. Definitely. Obviously, I, I, there's no point going into War of the Worlds because that's that's an obvious uber classic. Yeah. And you know, made super famous by what's his Orson Welles. Orson Welles, yes. Yeah. Terrifying everybody. <laughs> yeah, they they spell their name differently, which I'd never noticed before. I've always been confused about H.G. Wells and Orson Welles because of that and War of the Worlds and how confusing it all is. Yeah, it's too many wells. Well, well, well. <laughs> well, three, well, Three well. holes in the ground. <laughs> Weird book that's after that is um, Edison's Conquest of Mars, hmm. which is a book written by Garrett P. Service, which is a sequel, apparently, to War of the Worlds, a sort of unauthorised version where he has Edison, the real Edison, who also hadn't authorised this, hmm. who then goes to Mars to to reap revenge on the Martians. So Edison, on all his engineering skill, builds spaceships and weapons and goes and kicks the Martians' asses, Mars' ass, as they say. Uh, um, Isn't it ironic now that it's more likely that it'll be Tesla that gets there? Ooh. <laughs> wow, that is <laughs> that is quite funny, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, although I've never, ever, ever bought into the Tesla Edison being enemies argument. I'm sure I it's... Watch the know, film. There was a recent movie and it was yeah. spirit-crushingly dull, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 find the, I find the whole Edison Tesla thing a little bit dull because it just, it just reeks of... They were both pretty narcissistic anyway anyway you know it's not just the americans and the in the british getting in on this red star is a massive book by alexander bogdanov it imagines of course mars being a socialist utopia 
Oh, how did they come into that one? <laughs> Quite literally, the Red Planet. Yeah. Um, then, of course, Edgar Rice Burroughs is huge for his Princess of Mars and all the other Mars stories that he wrote. Now, I've never heard of this one, but I've definitely heard of the writer. Alita. Have you ever heard of that? Alita, A-E-L-I-T-A. Alita. Right, okay. Alita by Tolstoy. Yeah, okay. Arguably one of the greatest writers of all time. Uh, I've heard and, of him. Yeah, and it's one of the first Soviet science fiction novels. Um, obviously a lot later than Alexander Bogdanov's, Bogdanov's but um, yeah, so he, he has this um, engineer, Mstislav Sergeyevich Loslos, who, constru- who constructs a revolutionary pulse detonation rocket called the Stellarium, and flies over to uh, Mars. Isn't Stellarium a fantastic word? I mean, it's such a shame that's not used more. Stellarium. Yeah. Well, and it's not not unreasonable to have pulse detonation as well. You know, that's that's pretty cutting edge. Tolstoy is obviously onto something there. Now, we've also got an enormous writer here, C.S. Lewis, out of the Silent Planet, which I have heard of. Oh, I haven't. Which, I'm terrible. I haven't heard of any of these. <laughs> you, haven't, you haven't heard of Out of the Silent Planet? I think no. one of the reasons why I've heard Out of the Silent Planet is because a lot of bands use it as an album title as oh. well. He's a little bit more, C.S. Lewis, a bit more religiously motivated, I think. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so he's he's sort of saying, oh, you know, there's there's probably, you know, a bit more of a metaphysical thing going on here. So, yeah, he he talks about the Earth uh, has been flung out of the solar system, as in everyone has ostracised Earth because it's been taken over by an angelic being known as Bent Oyarsa. (laughs) And uh, the rest of the solar system, the field of Arbol, knows the Earth as the silent planet because it's been you know, cast out. And Mars is called Malacandra in the book. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Well, I like it. Yeah. It brings, and... to, brings, to, brings to mind that sort of, you know, like obviously when you've got your original um, sort of um, realisation that we're not the centre of the solar system and the universe, and then when these things start to boom about life on the other planet, with the religious sort of implication is quite interesting because... I would imagine there'd be a bit of pushback from those on this planet who believe that we are the only and chosen ones, you know? <laughs> it's, uh... Well, exactly. When Schiaparelli, I mean, that's a, such an ace point. When Schiaparelli looked at Mars and he's suggesting that there's life there and maybe intelligent life, then, yeah, of course. Imagine you go, you know, the Earth has been made in God's image and all those sort of thoughts yeah. and it's like well well, what about those guys do they have the do they have the same god yeah exactly and then yeah it's so many things that sort of come out of of well that's why mars is so important isn't it it it, it, it holds so many so many kind of mysteries about yeah, and, what and it is to be human yeah, their current their current mission you know perseverance that discovery will would be absolutely astonishing i mean we know it would anyway but yeah. To, to, oh my to, God! It just, it just it doesn't even bear thinking about. But we'll get and we'll get onto that in a second. Percy being the last of the ones that get there. But couple more books before we get to 
what essentially ends that kind of fiction because it suddenly Mars becomes science fact yeah. when we get to Mariner. But there's a couple more books. There's Project Mars, which is by Werner von Braun. And, Werner! Um, Werner! And it's a novel about a human mission to Mars and the encounter with Martians on the planet. But it includes the technical spec of how to do this exhibition expedition to Mars. Well, if anyone was going to write it... Yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't published until 2006. Wow. This was written in 1949, but then didn't get published. And I, ha- I'm, I, I haven't read it. I, I must get Project Mars. Yeah, definitely. Uh, uh, got Ray Bradbury is pretty big. The Martian Chronicles, of course, huge, 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 made into films. But the, with the quote came from The Outward Urge by John Wyndham. John Wyndham being one of my favourite sci-fi writers. Yeah. He sort of, you know, you had to read his books growing up at uh, growing up in this country as part of your school education. Yeah, and the Midwich Cuckoos is great. That is a great book, and and the Chrysalids and all that. But um, yes, and of course the Triffids. That's quite good as well, isn't it? Yes, they're the Triffids. Um, yes, he describes quite a realistic Mars landing in his book, The Outward Urge. But the Outward Urge is about a family. And it sort of skips generations through the family who've got this bug, this outward urge to go out into the into space, and it sort of follows this this family as they as they are in different parts of history. So it's set from 1994 to 2194, so over 200 years, and looks yeah. every 50 year intervals. And so there's a space station in Earth orbit in the 90s. In the 1990s, wow. which is actually is not not far off, Moon Base in the 2020s. Oh, getting well, there. That 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 might not be far off. Yeah. This one, this one is a this one I'm looking forward to. Nuclear war in 2044. Oh, that's going to be fab. <laughs> fab. That's a fab one. And then uh, once the whole of the northern hemisphere has been destroyed, Australia and Brazil. Uh, are in a new space race to get to Mars for 2094. I'm I'm kind of hoping that the timeline that this book isn't very accurate, really. But, yeah, yeah, let's hope so. Yeah, landings on Mars in 2094. Actually, you know, that's not totally unfeasible, to be fair. <laughs> but hopefully without the whole nuclear war thing, I'd be happy. Yeah, but without the nuclear war in the middle, I, I think if there's a nuclear war in the middle, I don't think that that's feasible. Yeah, uh, I can't see just, the next yeah, one happening either. Venus in twenty one forty four. I'd say you are. Yeah. That's to have some sun cream. Yeah, yeah uh, and yeah, everything else cream. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anti-acid rain cream. That's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of these kind of books come to a crashing halt because Mariner four in July sixty five actually gets to mars incredible takes pictures and there it is it's heavily cratered thin atmosphere no canals no gondolas but the lack of surface water complete surprise to all scientists you know sagan you know at that point thought there were going to be plants everywhere and it's just incredible i think that that's like only just before i was born and mars was you know we were clinging on to the hope that it was a planet with lots of life on, only mm. to find that it's just as barren as the moon 
Or is it? Or is it? Or was it? Or is it? Or was it? <laughs> the great thing, what I love about I love about all the authors that we've just heard about and all the all the books that they've written, most of those writers are commemorated in craters on Mars. So a lot of the craters, the bigger craters, are named after science fiction authors who wrote about Mars. That's craters above 60 kilometres in diameter are named after scientists and authors. Once it gets smaller than that, the craters are just named after random towns on Earth <laughs> that, are sort of, that are just literally picked out of a, picked out of a hat. <laughs> just random pool of terrestrial place names, and they pull it, pull it out and say, yep, there we go. It's Toxteth. Oh, please tell me there's crater. a Kirby. I'd love it if if there was there, a Kirby on there, Mars. There even might be a Kirby crater. There is a Birmingham <laughs> crater. I do know that. Yeah. But um, yeah, there's probably a Liverpool crater as well. There's definitely a Bristol cr- cr- uh, crater. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm going to ask a question, and this is this is for all our listeners too. If you haven't fallen asleep, is <laughs> what decade saw the most launches? to mars was it 60s 70s 80s 90s 2000s the 10s or the 20s which which decade saw the most launches to mars ready um go for it have i got an answer which one did you yeah go on answer let's see well the thing is the way things are going in the 2020s i think this will be the decade of the most missions but that doesn't count because they haven't done it yet have they it's only 2021 give us a chance matt um, yeah so the first the first ones were in the 60s and mm-hmm. oh is it the, is it the 70s the 70s there was 11 mars missions oh. which puts it in second position right okay and numero uno position is the 60s, 13 attempts to That's get amazing. to Mars. Wow. Yeah. Uh, the 80s only saw two attempts. Paltry. The 80s was, the 80s and space is a complete nightmare. Completely, absolutely. So 90s saw eight, 2000s saw eight. The 10s only saw six missions. That's terrible. So the 2020s so far have seen three. So that's pretty good. That's, that's really good. good going. If we go for three, three a year, then, you know, that's going to be a lot of not emissions. <laughs> yeah. 30. But actually, the good news is there has never been as many active Mars missions as there are today. So there's ah. 11 active Mars missions right now, which is which is a record. So we've never, ever had as many of that. So 2021 is the year of the most amount of active Mars missions. Well, that makes me feel a so, bit better. Yeah. What we should talk about is the poor old Russians. Oh, when it not again. comes to going to Mars, uh, you've got you've to feel sorry for them. Definitely. They were the first to try. They were the first to try. And they've not really had a fully successful mission there yet. And they've not landed properly. Um, although they do have some claims to, to, to some first. Like they're the first people to soft land on Mars. But it never actually sent a, any decent photo back. It sent back a grey photo, so it doesn't really count. So the first two missions, the Mars 1M program, or Marsnik, as it <laughs> was known in the uh, in the British press, yeah. Mars 60A and Mars 60B, 
Korobol 4, Korobol 5, as they were known to the Russians, um, neither of them even got out of um, low Earth orbit. <laughs> they got to an altitude of 100 miles and then fell back down again. Not quite the 100 million miles required. <laughs> Did they get us a certificate for just trying or anything like that? No, there is there isn't there is no equivalent of the wooden spoon in no. space. Then missions three and four, they tried again. They both failed to get out of Earth orbit. <laughs> again. <laughs> right? <laughs> Disaster. Right. Their fifth mission, Mars One, or Beta New One, 1962, um, launched uh launched to Mars on November the first, nineteen sixty-two. And it actually achieved interplanetary orbit. So it was on its way. But once it got into 106 million kilometers from Earth, on its way, for some reason, what's very, very hard, obviously, is that the antenna always has to be pointing in the right direction to be able to communicate. And obviously that system failed at that point. Well, no one really knows what happens to it. It could have been hit by a could have been hit by an alien spacecraft. But could, that's yep. probably Probably what happened. Yeah, most likely. So lost, lost. That number five, lost. Number six and seven, the Zond 1964A and the Zond 1964B. Uh, Basically, Zond, the first one, failed at launch, which is a complete disaster. The second one... uh, (laughs) Well, yeah, the second one, mid-course manoeuvre, lost. So probably blew up some valve somewhere opened and the whole thing blew up so again lost <laughs> 1969 <laughs> so america we're have already got the there 60s. now with the, with the, <laughs> yeah so the, well the russians were really trying to get there you know yeah. but they just you know they looked like they were losing the space race but that you, you you think about the 60s and just how much russia were doing in the 60s in space they were proper going for it you know yeah. A bit like China are now, really. Yeah. But they're they're really going for it. They build um, uh, another two, seven and eight. Both of them crash on proton rockets, and the proton rockets, like when you read about those launches, they are so scary. Like people get stuck in the launch complex because there's bits of proton rocket blocking the way out and there's hydrazine absolutely everywhere and they have to wait until it rains to wash it all away <laughs> flipping eh mission number nine here we go the cosmos 419 it was supposed to be the first spacecraft that got into orbit around mars which would have been a coup yeah for the russians failed to launch due to the upper stage malfunctioning <laughs> so again lost <laughs> <laughs> so 10 and 11 were mar- so this one's all right so 10 and 11 two probes the m71 project mars 2 and 3 um they had an orbiter and a lander first first rovers beyond the moon they did actually launch in 1971 and reach mars seven months later the lander of mars 2 crash landed because the computer malfunctioned yeah. But the first ever man-made object to reach the surface of Mars was on December the 2nd, 1971. Finally. When little baby Matt was only three yeah. months old. Oh, I was minus eight. I was just looking forward to my first Christmas. Full of hope. Full of hope. <laughs> the Mars 3 lander became the first spacecraft to achieve a soft landing 
but its transmission was interrupted after 14.5 seconds. So it didn't last very long. But they did it. Uh, but, but, the, but the orbiters, both orbiters, two and three, actually did send back loads of data. So that was actually pretty successful, the orbiters. You get there um, in the end. That's the thing about the Russians. Yeah. And then they had mixed success, really, with 12, 13, 14, and 15 attempts, <laughs> Mars 4, 5, 6, and 7. Um, but, yeah, you know, they, they, you know, they did the same sort of things, managed to... Um, Managed to get into orbit. Some of them, some of the landers completely missed the planet. <laughs> they, they did all right in the end. It's like they, they were trying they to, trying, trying to complete a really expensive computer game. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah. Of course, the most recent was the Chinese and Russian mission, Phobos Grunt, uh, and and it was supposed to, you know, go and get samples as well. This thing. Uh, but it didn't get out of low Earth orbit, which which is pretty horrendous. And I think the Chinese were not happy about that. No, they wouldn't be. You know, the whole lot smashing down into the Pacific Ocean again. <sighs> again. So, yeah, and I remember Phobos Grunt very, very well. It's like, wow, that, that is not good. Not good at all. Americans, of course, have had a lot, lot better time. So I'm going to quickly whip through those so we can get to Eric's interview. But yes, the Americans, what did they do? What did they do? Oh, their first and second attempts, 1964, Mariner 3 and Mariner 4, identical spacecraft. I noticed that that the Russians and the Americans both went for this doing it in pairs. Yeah. That's going to show how unreliable it all was. Strength and numbers. Uh, Mariner 3 lost didn't get out of uh, didn't get out of earth orbit but mariner 4 did manage the fly past of course yeah. on july the 14th 1965 with the first ever close up photographs of another planet and they're recorded on a like a little tiny tape recorder inside the probe and then sent back Amazing. And of course, you know, this this absolutely changed everything. It changed everything because suddenly everyone knew now that the, the surface atmosphere was only 1% of Earth's, that the, the daytime temperatures were probably minus 100 degrees centigrade. Balmy. <laughs> that there was no, the, the, the big one, no magnetic field. No chance. Uh, and, and radiation belts as a result, which means, of course, that the atmosphere just gets whipped off by the solar wind. So they were just starting to understand that. And it's like, yep, no life. And, I mean, that's a total disappointment, isn't it, really? Yeah. That it, the, the, Like the excitement of, oh, my God, we've got there, followed by the utter Oops. crushing realisation that it's not that great a place. Sucker all. punch. So, Sucker but, punch. But, of course, I had to go back to... I had to go back to the drawing board for all the landers as well because what they thought was a thick atmosphere or anything to get through, no, you're, you're sort of landing through a really thin atmosphere, which makes things very, very difficult. Uh, but the, uh, NASA's next attempt, the Mariner program, was flyby probes six and seven, and they both reached the uh, planet in 1969, which is which is incredible. 69, Fantastic. what a year for space. I know, is, right? just thinking, I mean, maybe I, I even... <laughs> might have been slightly overshadowed by what else was going on but yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean in some ways it's it's somehow more impressive isn't it to get to mars yeah you know? yeah absolutely <laughs> it's amazing. like you have to travel 
300 million miles rather than 250,000 miles. Yeah, so, I would imagine the, the Mars departments and the Moon department were just like sworn enemies and they were like, you know, yeah, you know, 250,000 miles, get out of town. We've done tens of millions. <laughs> it's, 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 it, it would have been a good bit of uh, fun in the, in the canteen, I reckon. The, the, again, Mariner 8 destroyed in a launch failure. Mariner 9, however, does get to Mars, and that's a, that's a super-duper one. So Mariner, Mariner 9 jo- joins the Soviet orbiters Mars 2 and 3, just at the point where Mars is having an, a planet-wide dust storm. <laughs> <laughs> so it can't really take any decent photos. So they get it to go over and photograph Phobos. But they also look at Mars for a bit, and as the dust is as the storm's clearing, they can see the odd surface feature. And one of those features is Nix Olympica. And they can see that crikey, this thing must be absolutely enormously high. And uh, yeah, it turns out that it's the highest mountain volcano in the entire solar system, which of course means that they decide to call it. Olympus Mons. Olympus Mons. Now, it has to be said that the next landing, the Viking 1 and 2 program, the Viking program, just insane. Yeah. Incredible. So they're the second and third spacecraft to successfully land on Mars, except they actually did send back colour photos from the surface of Mars. So they're the first objects ever to land on a planet and actually function correctly. Now, here's here's an here's a very very interesting fact from Viking, is that there was a biological experiment on board the Viking lander that, at the time, was inconclusive. It sort of, at the time, sort of said, "Oh my God, there's there there really is sort of simple microbial life on Mars." Mm. And everyone went, no, nah, there's probably other there's probably other reasons for it. But it was reanalyzed uh, in 2012 by uh, Giorgio Bian- Bianchiardi. Giorgio Bianchiardi. I wonder if he was born in March. But it's um and it's and, and the paper is titled Complexity Analysis of the Viking Labeled Release Experiments. And the conclusion is that that experiment suggests robust signs of microbial life on Mars. Oof. So, so there's a there's a good chance, or I mean, it's it's hard to say it, but the good chance that Viking might have actually have discovered life on Mars, but we just don't say it until Percy or another trip there also proves it repeats the experiment i guess yeah but that's crazy isn't it absolutely amazing and and, and at the time they were just like nah <laughs> <laughs> oh well oh, another another yeah. disappointment like yeah <laughs> yeah it's like yeah can we really say it's life i don't know i don't know it just we, we better not say it yeah, uh, America had actually a complete and utter nightmare with their Mars Observer Orbiter. That was the that was the one that really took the wind out of the American sails. Yeah, in 1993, they lost contact with it, 
and it looked like it probably blew up on the way to Mars due to some check valve problem in the pressurization system. And that's what happened to the Akatsuki space probe as well in 2007, in 2010, although they did actually save that one. It's just so, so tough. There's so much more complexity, isn't there? When you get into this distance and you get into this sort of level of, of, uh, mm. of, 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 of of basically trying to navigate and uh, all the technical aspects of it. And there's like a lot more failures for Mars than any other, really. Or, oh, um, yeah. I mean, yeah. there's so many. But from this point onwards, we start to get insane uh, reliability, <laughs> actually. Yeah. Because after that failure, you have one of the best missions ever, which is Mars Pathfinder. So... That gets there is um, in 1997, July the 4th, and that's and that had a, uh, a lander and a little tiny rover called Sojourner. So Aww. obviously Sojourner is the is the is this is a bit like and and I've heard this said before as well. It's a bit like the helicopter on Perseverance in the fact that it's a test, a technology demonstrator, and it's like. Will rovers be any good on Mars? Yeah. And yes, it was. It was. And all that technology and the airbag landing system as well that they used for that particular mission was used for like the the next, the uh, really amazing Mars exploration rovers, Spirit yeah. and Opportunity. But, Bounce but them down. Bounce them down. Before then. Yeah, before then, we've got Mars Global Surveyor. Which went into orbit and and did a um, a pretty amazing weird looping ellipse to get down to a circular orbit to to uh, start surveying the um, uh, Mars and started mapping in 1999. Still going. Mars yeah. Odyssey uh, arrives in 2001. Another amazing mission. Was but it named Odyssey because favorites. it was 2001? Was it Odyssey because 2001, 2001, a space Odyssey? Is that why they called it that? Ooh. They should have some sort of tribute to Kubrick after all he did with the moon landings. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Here's my favourite. Is 2003. Oh, here we go. You get the European Space Agency with Mars Express. Sets We're off here to stay. Yes. And that off we go. We're, and of course, the Europeans are the first people to successfully get into Mars orbit on our first attempt. Have <laughs> that. Have that. Ah. that Russia, so, China, America. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, and you know. <laughs> so yeah. So gets gets into orbit around Mars on Christmas Day, two thousand and three. Mm. And I remember this really well because, of course, in Britain, what we really wanted to know about was uh, Beagle 2. So Mars Express orbiters in orbit, that's safe. It's one of the most important Mars, um, <laughs> Mars bits of hardware out there at the moment. But Beagle 2 uh, went into Mars's atmosphere, but they couldn't communicate with it once it had gone through its seven minutes of terror, mm. although I don't think it was called seven minutes of terror back then. And, it, of course, it, it landed in bouncing balls as well. Yep. Um, but it was never, ever, ever communicated with. And no one really knew what had happened to it, but everyone assumed it had just 
litho braked into the into the ground. In other words, just smashed into the ground and was yeah. destroyed. However, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter managed to get some pictures quite recently of the spacecraft on the ground and one of the solar panels has failed to deploy and that's Ugh. all that was wrong and that blocks the aerial from being able to communicate. And uh, yeah, so which does actually make Beagle 2 the first and only British and European probe to achieve a soft landing on Mars. So I would say that the British have actually achieved a soft landing on Mars, as have the Russians, have, have the United States. But the but the US are the only people to achieve um, a working <laughs> probe <laughs> afterwards, which I suppose is the point. But yeah. soft landing-wise, actually, poor old Pillinger, the guy that was the Beagle 2 boss, died before he ever found that out even though he maintained it all along and it's a it's a very sad story but mm. it's, it's it's such a pity because if beagle 2 had worked there was a pretty strong chance that it may have returned back a viking type result of oh my god there's life on mars mm. which would have been pretty awesome is there any way they can As send a- something to just peel that solar panel out you know like just, oh, just grab hold of it and open it up it's probably knackered now though isn't it yeah i guess i don't know it might be worth it yeah because it's a it's a pretty expensive piece of kit exactly a mass spec a mass spectrometer the smallest of its kind at the time um Next was NASA's Mars Exploration Rovers, Spirit and Opportunity, that were so insanely successful. 2004, they landed, and they just carried on going. Mm. And it's, you know, it's only a couple of years ago now that they, that they lost contact with um, Opportunity, but they'd been on there for absolutely ages. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, like just just incredible missions, completely outlived their 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 total mission time. Is there any idea of like of course, what kind of distance that they've covered in that time? It's a lot. It is a lot. Uh, Opportunity did a, a very very long distance. Last week we talked about Mars reconnaissance Mars reconnaissance orbiter, which which one of the one of the main instruments that Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter has is a massive telescope, like a huge, huge reflecting telescope called HiRISE. Yeah. And it's the, it's the largest telescope on a deep space mission. It's um, 0.5 metres in diameter, which is pretty flipping big. Yeah. Um, f- uh, and that was the one that took pictures of both Curiosity and uh, Perseverance landing, mm. which I think is just an incredible feat of engineering just like mind-blowing <laughs> like be, i said yeah. it's like pointing your microscope at a football to try and capture a bacteria landing on the football <laughs> yeah, it's incredible it's just no, it's just mind-blowing it's, it's, we're it now watching ridiculous. ourselves doing what we're doing that's pretty amazing yeah so that was um yeah in 2006 that 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 managed to get into operation after five months of aero braking. So the way that they, the way that that worked was it, it it used the very thin atmosphere to try and slow down and circularize its orbit, which was very very clever. Yeah. Um, and it's still obviously in operation. Then Curiosity 
Enough said about curiosity. Insane, insane, insane in the membrane. Brilliant yeah. piece of gear. That's uh, landed on Mars 2012. Yeah. Good that was your first, uh, year, or, you know, eight first, and a half years ago. First rover to have a Twitter account. No, is that right? Well, Must I suppose be, yeah. Twitter was quite new then, yeah. Yeah. I was thinking yeah. about spirit and opportunity, sort of pre all that social media nonsense, aren't they? Yeah, really? yeah, completely. And then Maven was uh, is uh, another mission that arrived uh, in 2014. And then we've got India. India joins the game. Yeah, the Mangalian arrives in 2013. And so India also joined the European list of uh, arriving at um, arriving at Mars on their first attempt. Well in. And getting into orbit. Nice which, one, lads. Which, when, you, when you listen to how much bother the Russians had, you realise what a massive achievement that is for the Indians to have done. Yeah, incredible. For $71 I mean, million. Dollars. That's all it cost, the whole budget. What? <laughs> that is insane. I know. Yeah, that's less than some rocket launches, just yeah. the launch. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely incredible. mad. Absolutely mad. Europeans again, ExoMars, Trace Gas Orbiter, that went off, and of course, it carried yet another lander. This time, Chaparelli, which of course is where we started this whole story. Yeah, full but the circle. The Chaparelli lander also smashed into the surface of Mars oh, this time. Oh man! Yeah, and I see there um, that it was an EDM lander, which is you know not my favourite type of music, but the kids like it. You know, it, it was a smash hit. Dropped the base, like or like, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll yeah. work something out. You should wait, wait for the drop. Yeah. <laughs> wait for the drop, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, <laughs> Insight, of course, that's a nice new one with the mural and things like that. And mm. uh, and the great thing about Insight with the two little CubeSats, Marco oh. A and Marco B that flew alongside it. Oh, we love great. those CubeSats. Uh, of course, Insight's still going. And, of course, we've recently been joined by Hope, Tianwen, and Perseverance. Wonderful. Which has got a blooming helicopter. I keep I trying to get my head around that. Yeah. A helicopter. <laughs> it's incredible. So we should see the helicopter probably in April. And then in May, we'll see the Chinese attempt at being the first country after the US to soft land and operate a rover on Mars. Can you imagine that? Yep. It's gonna that be will make the Rus- that will make them Ruskies jealous. Yep, absolutely. That's for sure. But I would like to see those two rovers have a bit of a fight. I think that would be great. I mean they're probably landing very far away from each other, but you know, a fight would still be great. To the fight! death. <laughs> Or maybe Tianwen will go over and, and just lift up that last little solar panel for poor old oh, people. Oh, just pick it, just pick it off. Just peel it back. That's oh, all they need to do. Go on, please. Please. And of course, soon, 2022, we'll see um Jamie Franklin Rover. I mean the Rosalind Franklin Rover <laughs> go to <laughs> go to Mars. That that should be pretty good. The Russian Roscosmos ESA mission to Mars, which will be very exciting, and um, and India are going to try again in 2024. Go on, India, you can do it. To keep up with the Chinese, they're probably going to have a little rover with that as well. What's this one going to cost them about five quid? 
about 60 quid. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, so, uh, uh, Chris, do you want to hear my uh, interview with the absolutely untouchable Eric Berger? I would absolutely love to, Matthew. So, yes, uh, next week we'll probably have a little deep dive into how humans are going to get to Mars, but some of these questions are answered a little bit in this interview. Okay. Hey, Kootay! The Interplanetary Podcast is alive! Welcome back to the podcast, Eric. It is always a pleasure. It's certainly a pleasure for me. I, I need to tell you that you are by far the most popular guest I can have Matthias Maurer. I can have uh, Brian Cox, but Eric Berger, you're, you are you are the, <laughs> the most popular guest. So I think that that either says something about my listeners or or says something about you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it says, but but I'm I'm flattered and a little a little nervous at the same time. Before we start, there's one tweet that you made that I interacted with that keeps I keep seeing that come back up. So it's obviously something that interest people you commented about how delayed sls was and i commented on oh my god that means we won't see people on it until 2027 was my guess and then you said probably we never will and uh, <laughs> people keep asking you to back that up and you tend to back that up so i'm going to ask you <laughs> do you think humans will ever fly on sls <laughs> Uh, you know, it's a great question, and I think it's it's still very much to be determined. Um, this all started because I went drinking with a friend and source back in 2017, and he's a pretty knowledgeable guy about the industry in general, not affiliated with SLS or anything like that. And I just said, really, you know, XXX, your name, what do you think, when do you think SLS is really going to launch? And we had had a few beers at that point. He's like, ah, 2023. And it seemed preposterous at the time. And it was, you know, I just threw it out on Twitter because why not? And over time, you know, the, the seemingly preposterous date of a 2023 first launch has gotten closer and closer to reality. I think it's accurate to say now we're looking at spring of 2022, probably is the realistic earliest launch date. Um, for the rocket. And if that's the case, that raises all kinds of questions like, you know, is that is that flight rate enough to sustain the rocket? And will NASA ultimately decide that, that maybe you should just put cargo only on SLS? Or maybe it's one of the things where it flies once and then it gets canceled because of cost, because uh, Starship is up and flying at that point. I just think there are lots of reasons to think that while we may see Artemis 1 fly on SLS, Artemis 2 and beyond may fly on other vehicles. I mean, the, door, the barn door was already open when Starship was selected as one of the three companies for the human landing system. Right. And I mean, when you look at the bid, it's not the crew doesn't launch on Starship and SLS and Orion take the crew out to meet Starship in lunar orbit. Starship goes down on the moon, comes back. The crew gets into Orion and comes back to Earth. Now, do you think that's really how that mission would go? <laughs> it does. <laughs> yeah. I, well, the only thing that I can think why you do it that way is because of the lack of launch escape on Starship. So that's fine. And I think it will be quite a while before crew members launch on Starship. But okay, then they launch on Crew Dragon, 
which, oh, by the way, flies on a rocket that's flown a hundred times and has a damn good safety record. And Crew Dragon, you know, is, is it will have flown a number of missions by then. So it's much more experienced than Orion. And it rendezvous in low Earth orbit with Starship. And Starship takes them out to the moon and back. Um, I just, there's lots of other ways to architect this. And we'll know more in the coming months when the human land system contracts get, get moving to the second phase. And I, I would just say that all of the architecture for Artemis, which thankfully does look like it's moving forward, is very much in play. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the only thing that I would say is you want two systems, don't you? I mean, one of the sort of massive problems with the International Space Station is that there was only one system for getting up there for a long time until SpaceX rescued that situation. So if you're if you're serious about having a moon base, for example, you wouldn't want just one system going there, would you? You wouldn't, but, I mean, the Dynetics lander is going to launch on Vulcan, and the Blue Origin... Lander is probably going to launch on New Glenn or Vulcan. So again, you know, you've got triple redundancy on rockets and getting stuff to low Earth orbit or to the moon. So again, the rocket is just not the essential part of the equation. Right now, Mm. the essential part of the equation is the lander. Yeah, so... (laughs) Yeah, that's not looking <laughs> well. You've answered that one pretty, pretty comprehensively. I don't, don't know really where to go with it, but yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? I just thought I'd bring it up because I know that it's everyone, everyone waits on your bated breath for that for with bated breath well, for you to, to answer. I mean, that one, and, it, I think. and the program is not helping itself because the core stage has been on the test stand in southern Mississippi now for more than thirteen months, and yeah, there were problems last year. I mean, it was a really nasty year for hurricanes on the northern Gulf of Mexico. Um, and they had COVID-19 to deal with as everyone did. And that was no fun. Um, but you know, they finally got around and we're going to test in November and there was a pre-valve issue and that set them back about six weeks. And then they tested in December or excuse me, in January for 67.1 seconds and, and had problems. So they never really got to the meatiest part of the test with this really intense thrust vectoring where they move the engines around and, and, and so forth. Um, things you need to do during the launch process. And so now they were going to test this week, February 25th, today actually, um, and they had another pre-valve issue. And so they haven't set a new date for the test. And so the uh, SLS program could help itself immensely if it could execute. Um, unfortunately, we're continuing to see evidence that it's just very difficult for them to do so. Uh, do you think New Glenn is going to fly this year? Well, we are just extremely timely. And no, I have been saying New Glenn is not flying until 2023 for quite some time. And just hot off the presses, Blue Origin just put out a press release this morning saying they're now targeting Q4 2022 for the first launch of New Glenn. So we can definitively answer your question saying not this year. And let's be real. If the date for something in aerospace is the fourth quarter of next year. It's not flying in the fourth quarter of next year, right? It's slipping into, it's slipping into 2023. And the fact of the matter is, I'm not sure people appreciate, this is a huge rocket. Like New Glenn is gonna be a super impressive booster. And for Blue Origin, you know, to go from New Shepard, which is a tidy little launch system with a small BE3 engine to 
seven BE4 engines on this honking rocket that, oh, by the way, is really expensive to build. So they're going to try to land it right out of the gate. That's, that's a massive undertaking. And so, again, it was never realistic to expect it to, as soon as it was thought. But when it does eventually fly, it should be a very impressive booster. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm I'm definitely looking forward to it. That that is that is definitely a, a contemplate tickets to America <laughs> to <Definitely>, watch. Yeah. <laughs> um, what are your thoughts on the Perseverance landing? I mean, it, it it keeps sending us this this wonderful things from Mars that we hadn't seen or heard before. You know, I remember when I first heard about Perseverance, or it was Mars 2020 back in the day. You know, I was like, ah, another curiosity. I mean, we've done this, right? What's the big deal? <laughs> um, and that, of course, was an idiotic take because Perseverance has all these cool things like the helicopter, the sample caching, the, you know, looking for, you know, trying to, to pull carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So it's doing some very cool things. And, and the video from the landing was just unbelievable, seeing yeah. that parachute pop out so quickly. And then sort of the image of the sky crane pulling away, um, leaving the rover. And, and, then, and then the audio, of course, from the surface. And then just yesterday, you know, someone did some image correction on, a, on one of the very first photos that Perseverance took. And if you look in the distance, you can see the cloud of dust, smoke or whatever from the descent stage crashing. <laughs> And yeah, that. it's like, oh, wow, that's so cool. So, I mean, this mission has already, in just a few days, delivered such wonderful imagery from Mars, and and now it's going to go off and explore the Delta. So, I mean, I'm, I, it's 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 stunning, it's 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 amazing, and it's a credit to NASA and and the contractors who continue to pull off these you know super hard missions to the surface of Mars. Yeah, it's 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 nice to talk about NASA in good terms because it, it's just an, what an incredible mission, and that's that's what NASA do like amazingly well. I mean, oh yeah, <laughs> I, it's I just, tremendous. And that yeah, you're right. That the footage of the of the sky crane itself, and the and the uh, the the bit that annoys me is you can't see flames coming out of the <laughs> out of the other rocket engines. And I know that that's just going to be conspiracy theories for days now. Uh, but talking of Mars, so we have Mars's greatest. Uh, <laughs> the person that wants to get to Mars more than anyone else on Earth is, of course, Elon Musk. And your new your new book is essentially about Elon Musk and his the early days of SpaceX. That's right. That's right. It, it, it takes a look at the formation of the company and really the, the narrative is built around the first four launches of the Falcon 1 rocket where they failed three times and then with everything on the line, they made it to space the fourth time. And while in, in general, it, you may think, well, who cares about the dinky little rocket that they, they never really flew much because no one wanted to launch on it. Um, you know, what's the big deal about that? But I have to say, if you want to understand why SpaceX has transformed the launch industry over this decade, you've got to go back to the last decade in the beginning and really see sort of how Elon put that, you know, put the DNA into SpaceX then. And it was, it was the same Elon in 2002 as it is today. Um, you know, one of the things that I love is that even the very first people that he hired at the company, 
he would tell them that that he was starting a space company to send people to Mars. Um, and and Gwen Shotwell, who's now the company's president, told me you know she interviewed with him I think in August of 2002. She said she said he was compelling, scary, but compelling. Um, so the book is about him, the company, and and really the people that made it possible for them to succeed ultimately. Yeah, I mean that that's the, definitely the thing that I've noticed with the book is that we're introduced to a lot of characters and and I'm pretty terrible at keeping up with characters and and their names and things but it, it's it's brilliant the way that it, it that you you you're bringing in the different characters and you can see their personalities and how they're interacting with Elon Musk almost immediately like you said the Gwyn the Gwyn Shotwell one is is really fascinating how she's spotted that it's a company that's trying to do things how she would actually want to do it and then but she resists joining for a bit as well yeah the great thing about gwen is you know in the aerospace industry in the space industry in the u.s and around the world i mean elon is a pretty controversial figure um he says things that piss people off um he you know is not nice to his competitors um you know he, he, he's he doesn't withhold insults right generally um and but gwen everyone loves gwen Right. Even Tori Bruno loves Gwen. I mean, you know, the head of United Launch Alliance, the SpaceX's biggest U.S. competitor. I mean, she's she's seen as this sort of, you know, always smiling, happy, you know, nice person. But but the, the funny thing is, like, they are totally simpatico behind the scenes. Like, you know, Gwen wants to crush the industry <laughs> just as much as Elon does. She's just sort of wears velvet gloves when she talks and, and does things. <laughs> well, yeah, and that, it definitely comes across. I mean, let, let, let's start from the very early uh, early days. I mean, one of the sort of things that, you, that comes across in your book, and I don't know whether this is just me the way that I've read it, but it comes across that it's very much feels like it's all cobbled together at the, at the start that they they have a the factory everyone has to sort of muck in that the hours are extremely long is that a culture that's remained within spacex that 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 still that's the case if you went to the if you went to the to the places of work now you would see people pulling these ridiculous long hours but occasionally playing quake against each other well it's 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 changed a lot because you've gone from a company with a few dozen employees and that's really what it was with that first falcon one rocket it was literally several dozen people building the rocket testing the rocket moving it to the launch site getting the permissions i mean there's so much work that goes into that and especially back then when there was no roadmap for how a private company would do this um and today there's like, you know, 6,000, 7,000 employees. And so some of that has changed and they have, they are cognizant of the work environment. I mean, one of the people that I focus on in the book is a guy named Brian Beldy, who started off as a, a pretty early hire, like he's employee 14 or something, who was doing some, you know, engineering for them. And, and he ended up doing human resources. He's the head of HR now for SpaceX. And the quote in the book is he's like, it was like dog years at SpaceX. It was one year, you know, for everyone else felt like seven years for us. And they, they, so they've tried to make it less so. I mean, I think when you're on a project or something where it's like intense, like you're going to be working 80 hours. Like if you're in Boca Chica, right, and an engineer down there and Elon is out there trying to work on a bulkhead, I mean, 
you know, he's up all night, you're up all night. Um, but I think there's, there's a better work-life balance at the company, but it's, it's still, I mean, one of the keys behind their success is that Elon applies this constant pressure to move things forward. Like he always wants things done faster. And so he's constantly telling his managers and his employees to move faster and giving them these arbitrarily difficult deadlines. And so that's why you see SpaceX doing things at a rate that other aerospace companies don't just because of him and sort of his, his demanding presence. Yeah. Cause I mean, there, there, there's sections in the book where like a phone call because they've run out of liquid oxygen, for example, and, and he basically says to them, if this happens again, you all get the sack. Is, is that, I mean, do his employees take that sort of as, as something that's impressive as in they, 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 they want to live up to the ideal or do they, do they find it scary and actually just go, well, we, we, we can't let him down. And therefore there's that, <laughs> I can't work it out whether the culture is one of being inspired by the boss or scared by the boss. Well, maybe so, you know, in, in the movie Return of the Jedi, um, <laughs> at the beginning, when there's this scene where they, the Emperor's ship flies into the Death Star under construction, and the Emperor <laughs> gets out and, and Vader says, well, you didn't have to come here. Um, and the Emperor's like marching along in the Imperial March. I mean, I don't want to say it's exactly <laughs> like that, but like when Elon shows up on whatever project you're working on, like it, it certainly raises the raises the temperature in in answer to your question. I think it's both things, you know, he is both inspiring and also can be terrifying, right? The people that he finds, the engineers that he finds to work at SpaceX want to be challenged. And so they're they're there. They know they're going to work hard. They know they're going to work long hours. Um, But they also know that they're going to get a chance to work on things that they couldn't do anywhere else. I mean, you know, there's no other private company in the world launching humans into space right now. SpaceX is the world's largest satellite operator. They've launched the world's largest, most powerful rocket um, in Falcon Heavy. You know, no one's landing rockets on boats. Um, no one's building Starship, this ambitious vehicle to go to Mars, right? So, so you go to SpaceX because the boss is a little crazy, but the boss is also this visionary genius who has great ideas, but and also has a track record. So, I mean, you kind of know what you're getting into. Um, as I say, it's, it's, it's inspirational and it's a little terrifying. And, you know, that's what you sign up for. Yeah, I mean, it must have been harder for the guys right at the beginning. Like, the, it, it, like particularly like pre-2008, where, where, they're th- where nothing has happened really. And all, his track record is PayPal or... Yeah. pretty much that's it and it's like uh, was he lucky that was he was was elon musk a little bit lucky with the with the first few employees that he that he managed to hook into the company because presumably he he didn't he, know what he, he was would not doing say either. he was lucky but i think he was lucky he was he was particularly lucky to get people like tom muller who was the head of propulsion just brilliant guy who you know sort of pushed forward the Merlin engine and made that work. He was lucky to get people like Tim Buzza, who was the launch director and, and, you know, worked, you know, worked as hard as you might can believe to, to get this stuff done. But, 
he's also a charismatic guy and, and he's not just sort of there cracking the whip. He's in those meetings. He's staying up late. He's, you know, he's helping with the hardest engineering problems. So he's, you know, he's in it to win it too. Um, and I think that goes a long way. Um, and, and if you can convince Elon, well, we can, you know, we can make this launch date or we can do this, but we've got to have this, this amount of liquid oxygen. We've got to have this metal. We've got to have, you know, yada, yada, yada. Then he's like, okay, do it. You know, there's no, like, as he, as he finally told me, um, you know, he's like, we're not really a traditional company because the, the CFO of this company is in my head and the <laughs> chief engineer is in this head. So I don't have to like the, the engineer, and the CFO don't have to have a meeting and the engineer convinced the CFO that we need to buy something. I just have to decide it and, you know, <laughs> then we go do it. So that's another reason why they can move fast is there's no real committee meetings. It's just that Elon's like, okay, do it. And they do it. I mean, the, the book certainly, I mean, I've always known the story, obviously, of how close SpaceX were to not really making it, as in the, the, the they had one more launch left in them, and then that's that's the money, that's Elon's massive wealth over. And, but, I mean, I must admit, after the, the chapter that I'm on at the moment, the fourth launch is just mind-blowing. <laughs> it's mind-blowing how ridiculous it is. Was there, was there something where, where you were, where you were, studying this story where you you thought oh my god that that really is ridiculous how, how on earth did it come to that what was I mean, <laughs> there were a couple moments a couple of my favorite stories are the mutiny before the first launch um where basically the they were working all night trying to get the first rocket ready and um the there was miscommunication because there would be calls between California and Kwajalein, which was the main island in this tiny atoll in the Pacific. And then there would sort of be calls from Kwajalein to Omelek, which was this even tinier island, you know, about 20 miles away where they were actually assembling the rocket and going to launch it from. And, you know, it just felt very heavy handed, the instructions coming down and, and one day they ran out of food and cigarettes. And so the employees said, basically stopped working and until a helicopter arrived and make, they pushed some food and cigarettes out of it to the mutineers. And as, as Bulan Alton, one of the people on the island told me it was a little bit like Lord of the Flies when the workers saw the helicopters, they just kind of rushed over. Um, and then, and then, you know, I mean, there was the <laughs> time when an intern brought a gun to the military base <laughs> because he thought it was dangerous um, so yeah, I mean, there's a lot of crazy stuff that they tried, you know, they, they, they had a huge problem with getting liquid oxygen out to the middle of the Pacific. And you might imagine why, right? Because it's got to be shipped from California to Hawaii and then shipped to, to Kwajalein. That's a long time for liquid oxygen. It's at sub freezing temperatures to be baking in the sun. And so they would lose one half to a quarter of the amount of locks before they even took delivery of it. So they, they ordered this machine that supposedly pulled oxygen from air the air and liquefied it <laughs> and it didn't work very well so they 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 were i mean it, it's it's hard enough like no company ever built an orbital rocket and launched it from anywhere like no private company had done that with their own money and they had, they had to not just do that they had to do it in the middle of absolutely nowhere right on Kwajalein 
So it's remarkable what they did. Uh, yeah, it, it, I mean, it, it is truly, it is truly nuts, and it's. I mean, one of the things that 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 the book sort of goes over are the people that have gone before Elon Musk. The you know, the decade before people who've tried it and wasted all their <laughs> wasted all their money, and and how it kind of that first uh, static fire test took the military by surprise. And do you think, in in some ways, that that learning experience of Elon Musk dealing with NASA, dealing with the military, and 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 being the person that they're trying to suppress of, of sort of go away type mentality that they seem to have with him? Do you think that that all those failures, in some ways, helped Elon Musk and and others at SpaceX learn how to deal with 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 those two? players that they would eventually like control almost you know i i would say it's less that and it's more that uh, again elon found gwen shotwell early on and she had a background in working for the aerospace corporation and a couple of other places and so she had lots of good contacts at at the military at with dod department of defense and nasa and so she was really good at managing those relationships um, where SpaceX would run into problems. Because the, the, the thing you have to understand with Elon is he always wants to run forward as fast as possible. And anything in his way is an obstacle to be moved, run through, or jumped over. Um, we saw this most recently with the SN8 and SN9 launches of Starship from South Texas. You know, they launched... SN8 without a final clearance from the FAA, which is really not not good. Um, and then when they were trying to get clearance for SN9 to fly, you know, he he angrily tweeted, "This is bureaucracy, blah blah blah." But that's that's kind of how he sees the government, like being in his way. And so his intention is to fight, and and Gwen Shotwell is good at helping him either fight those battles or sort of saying, Hey, you know, um, we really ought to pick and choose our spots to, to sort of stand up to these guys because it is remarkable. I mean, in, e even before their first launch, they had already protested a NASA contract and sued the government. And today they're NASA's most important contractor and increasingly they're, you know, on par with the DOD with United launch Alliance. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's just phenomenal, isn't it? If it, I mean that, it really brought it home to me that that the sort of third failure and and the fact that that Tesla were really struggling as well. And it's two thousand and eight, and there's a crash, and and you think, how on earth, how on earth did he really sort of navigate through that? It really was genuinely very close. And you think, twelve years later, or thirteen years later. And they're the they're the only game in town, and Elon Musk's the only game in town as well. He's the richest, you know, he's the richest man on earth. <laughs> I mean, if you go back, you go back, and that that is my favorite part of the book is the that eight week period between the third flight, which they all assumed was going to be successful. You know, it had a bunch of customers on it. It had some ashes from Scotty from Star Trek, for goodness' sake, um, and. Bob Reagan, who was the vice president of manufacturing at the time, this machinist told me that, you know, they had brought like a ice block into the factory in California that they'd just moved into. And he and he and 
Gwen shot while we're back there doing, sh taking shots on the shot luge, um, sort of just like celebrating. And then that rocket, you know, failed and, you know, they had eight weeks to get the final one put together. And it's, it's just all of the things that, that could have gone wrong and had to go right. Um, during that period, it's to, to me, I just think that's a, just an amazing, amazing story. And I'm glad to really be able to tell it, you know, fulsomely in this book. And, and it, it speaks to the fortitude, I think of, of Musk that he was able to weather the financial pressures faced by SpaceX. Tesla was not really selling cars yet. You know, his marriage had fallen apart. He was out of money in the middle of a recession, trying to find capital for these two companies and sort of, he hold, held it all together. And the trajectory since then has not entirely been up for SpaceX, but it is by and large really since the end of 2008, just been nothing but sort of stratospheric. And that's, that's, that's one of the reasons why I thought it was important to, to tell this story because, you know, how did they do it? Um, and, and the answers are sort of in those first years where they, where they did run into a lot of the hurdles. I mean, you know, I, so it was an interesting discussion on Reddit just the other day about how the Merlin engine has been such a champion, right? And it, it's for the Falcon 9 rocket. And it really has, you know, it's, it's had wonderful performance and, uh, and now they can use them over and over and over again on, on these missions. And it seemed like it worked almost from the beginning when they put it on the Falcon 9. And the reason is, you know, they had, they had screwed around with the Merlin engine um, for six years to try to get to work for the Falcon 1. And so then by the time they got to the end of that program, it was ready to go for the Falcon 9. But when they get that fourth flight to work and, and the company's saved, at what point was Elon thinking about Falcon 9? Was it before then or after then? that he's gone, right, let, let's let's forget Falcon 1 and just build this monstrous thing because my life hasn't been enough of as a roller coaster as it is. Well, it's funny, you know, on the first launch attempt in March of 2006, there's this funny story where a guy named Chris Thompson um, is the launch conductor. So the, basically the commands that are going to the rocket are going through him. And so they're counting down to the very first launch of the Falcon 1. And... Elon kept coming over to Thompson in this, this small control room in Kwajalein, pestering him, right? As, as Thompson said, having, having these really intense discussions about ordering aluminum for what was then the Falcon 5 rocket. And this was like 20 minutes before the first launch. And after one of these conversations, Tim Buzza, who was the launch director, turns to Thompson and says, what the hell is going on? Like, you know, it's like, so Elon was like worried about the Falcon 5 before he'd even launched the Falcon 1 the first time. And a few months later, they got a development contract from NASA to start work designing the Falcon 9 and Cargo Dragon spacecraft. Um, and so, you know, he was thinking, he, it was in 2006 that he sort of moved from the Falcon 5, which would have had five Merlin engines, obviously, to the Falcon 9, which has nine. And so he was thinking about that kind of, from that point on. And, and, and at that, you know, it, it became somewhat clear that you had to fly the Falcon 1 to show that you could do it, right? Because you weren't going to get an actual contract from NASA to build and fly Falcon 9s unless you could actually put a rocket into orbit. And so that was another reason why the Falcon 1 
project had to be successful, even though commercially it ended up being pretty much a failure. I am on. I think must it must be the best chapter, right? The the the, the fourth flight. I mean, it's just it's just the most insane story. It's almost like you've made it up. <laughs> well, well, if I made it up, a lot of people had their story straight. So, yeah. no, that was that was one of the fun things is sort of you had the outlines of this narrative, and then you could go talk to all the people that were there, right? Um, so, I, I so the incident you're referring to is this flight where they're they're out of time, they're out of money, and typically they would ship the Falcon One first stage by boat to Kwajalein, which was about a four-week voyage um, from the factory in California. In this case, they didn't have time to do that, so they arranged for a C-17 flight. And as, they're, as the rocket is descending into Honolulu on, on board this plane, it starts imploding due to, to an unanticipated pressure differential. And it basically, like, the whole thing implodes, and, and an engineer, a guy named Zach Dunn, who's this amazing person um, who is one of my favorite characters to come out of the book. Um, his profile, I think, will be raised after its, after its publication. Is the guy who crawls in and, and opens this valve. You know, can you imagine, like, at 30,000 feet, climbing into a dark rocket as it's pinging and imploding, and, like, you know, you could be crushed <laughs> to sort of try to open this valve to equalize or to get more, more oxygen inside the, the tank? I mean, it's... Well, it's, it is something out of a film, isn't it? It is, it is the... It is the sort of thing that uh, Bruce Willis would have done in <laughs> Die Hard or something. Like that. Or- right. You know, so it's fun to like talk to Zach and talk to, to Ann Chinnery, who was on the plane, and Florence Lee, who was on the plane. And then also to talk to like the vice presidents who are back in California, like after the plane lands in Hawaii, and they're all calling them and sort of getting their debrief about like, you know, they're like in tears because this last chance rocket appears to be destroyed. And the vice presidents are saying, no, you know, you've got to keep going. <laughs> so. yeah i mean <laughs> we had that 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 i mean because one of the things that, that the pilots of the plane want to just eject the thing out into the sea because it's it's like they consider it dangerous and things like that and you think god it's just it's so totally yeah. nuts it is totally nuts but yeah they they, <laughs> they get through so i mean it really does it, it really does make you realize that there's such a fine line between extreme success an extreme failure because, you know, presumably it just, yeah, if Zach Dunn hadn't crawled into the tiny crawl space to, and hadn't been able to change the valve, then we not we might not be sitting here talking about Elon Musk. No, I mean, if that rocket hadn't gone, the company would have failed. And if they hadn't gotten that contract from NASA three or four months later for the Falcon 9 and Dragon, they would have failed too. You know, as Elon said, they would have been the first company to reach orbit and then go bust. Um, hmm. Ouch. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. So now he is up and running. Now, now he's up and running. Uh, I'm going to ask a, a, just a couple of questions. But yeah, it's a fantastic, it's a fantastic book, Eric. I, I've been really, really enjoying it. So thanks very much for my advance copy <laughs> as well. But uh, just a quick final question. Then uh, we've got we've got Starship, and we've we've seen a couple of belly flops. What SN number do you think we're going to see the first? Soft landing, no explosion. I think they'll do this one. I think SN10 will make it. Um, it Elon recently said it was like 60% chance of landing. Um, he's learned to set expectations. I remember um, in advance of the first Falcon 1 launch, he told a reporter, 
from a publication called Fast Company, I believe, that there was a 90% chance of success. <laughs> and when I, one of the times I interviewed, I said, how do you feel about that prediction? He's like, well, obviously there was a 100% chance or there was a 0% chance of success. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he, you know, he's learned that since then to sort of like politicians do it before a debate to set expectations. Like I remember talking to him the day before the Falcon Heavy launch and he was, and he said there was a 50-50 chance of mm. success when in fact it was much higher, especially because the next day the flight, the launch was, you know, basically perfect. Um, so when he says 60% chance that SN10 will land, I suspect that's more like 75 or 80% chance that it'll land. So if they don't get it in this flight, they'll get it probably in the next one. They're close. I mean, the problems they've had are not, are not like super difficult. Like they'll figure out lighting engines and things like that. I mean, they're challenging, but they've done, they've gone through some of the same issues with the Falcon 9. Yeah. And Merlin. There definitely seems to be something like just one order of magnitude greater in terms of the difficulty of that final maneuver, though, doesn't there, than the than the Falcon 9 thing? Although, presumably, I mean, I don't um, know. Obviously, as an engineering thing, there's no way to tell by just looking at it. But. So the, it's Starship itself is easily an order of magnitude more difficult than Falcon 9 because the Falcon 9 first stage goes up and it comes back and it never gets close to orbital velocity, right? You know, it's just like six to eight times the speed of sound versus 25 times the speed of sound. So Starship is a much larger vehicle coming back to the atmosphere at orbital velocities. And you don't really want to invest a whole lot of effort or mass into landing legs or propellant because that just kills your orbital payload performance. And you also want to have it be refurbishable in a short period of time. And so they're trying to develop a heat shield that can, you know, can can fly through the atmosphere a lot of times. As you know, with the space shuttle, that the the tile system was enormously expensive and, you know, took months and months to turn around um, and ultimately had some fatal flaws as well. So, I mean, these are, Starship is, is a huge challenge. I think you know, getting the belly flop maneuver right was more challenging than these issues they're having with sort of the last minute burn to make a controlled landing. Because like I said, they have so much experience doing that with the Falcon 9. That's a solvable engineering challenge. The bigger question for me is, is can they, can they figure out the heat shield issues and, and sort of continue to do that crazy looking belly flop maneuver to, to position the vehicle for kind of the worst heating of atmospheric entry? Yeah. So, do you do you, do you think we'll see an orbital launch of of a Starship this yes. year? This the answer year? to that question is yes. We will see an orbital launch of Starship. Wow. Are you this, wanting a timeline? Yeah. Yeah. This year. This as in this year. I I, I think they could. I think it's definitely within the possibility um, because they're making pretty good progress on the booster. Uh, the first one is more than half assembled. They're starting on a second one. Um, my guess would be the first half of next year for an orbital flight. Will will they try the will they try one of the super heavy boosters before they won't have a Starship on top of the super heavy booster the first time round or will they? So so plans change all the time and I am not claiming any kind of special insider status to know what their plans are, but I'm reasonably confident that they'll try some hops first, maybe with one and and we'll get a better idea 
when they start installing Raptor engines on the booster, because ultimately it's going to have 25, but you could do a small hop with just one. Um, so if they put three on, then, you know, maybe they're going to do a kilometer flight or something like that, but it'll, it'll be like Starship. I think they'll go up higher and, and work on landing it. And then, you know, eventually get to the point where they think that they can go all the way to orbit. And, and again, the booster is not going to orbit. It's just, it's putting Starship on a trajectory to reach orbit and then it's coming back timeline for a starship landing on the moon <laughs> roughly uncrewed or crewed uncrewed first of all presumably they'll try uncrewed first i mean you could <laughs> i could see them doing that in 2023 or 2024 if they got permission i mean you know it's not it's not a trivial matter to get sort of permission to go try to land something that big on the moon you know because it could leave a crater um but you know, if they can get Starship to orbit, then the, then the, the, the other big hurdle they've got to get is in-space refueling. And so that's going to take, you know, a couple of years probably to, to work on that. But, you know, they'll get there. Um, so 2023, 2024 is probably realistic for that. And then crewed 26? <laughs> well, is that too, too soon? I mean... It, it, it's going to depend partly on whether Starship gets selected for the human landing system second phase contracts by NASA and what NASA's ultimate timeline for Artemis is. My guess is that that timeline becomes something like 2028 rather than 2026. So honestly, I would not, and this is going to diverge widely from SpaceX's timelines, but I have a hard time seeing crude flights on Starship anywhere before the second half of this decade. And I would say... 26 or 27 probably at least for that mm. and then so that leads us on to then mars will elon musk attempt human landings on mars with the starship again or i think i think they'll go with nasa because it's just and and i could be wrong about this and it's it's kind of stupid to bet against elon but there's so many regulatory issues with with getting to Mars and launching humans to Mars just from a planetary protection standpoint. Um, and then, you know, Starship is clearly, if it works, the best transportation system. Like, there's nothing even close. Space launch system, no. New Glenn, no. I mean, nothing in the pipeline would come close to what, what that vehicle could do. Um, but it takes more than transportation. You've got to have surface power on Mars. You've got to have... Um, um, habitation, you've got to have just keeping people alive. And there's so many, so many of these things NASA spent a long time studying, has a lot of expertise. And so I, I, it's, it's difficult for me to see SpaceX just saying like, okay, it's 2028, we're launching 15 people to Mars. Um, I think it will be a mission with NASA and super difficult for me to see that happening before 2030. Um, but I mean, who knows? He moves fast. Yeah, I mean, I th I think twenty thirty would be personally. I think that would be super optimistic, wouldn't it? I'd, I'd, yeah, I'd that, be, I mean, that would be my no earlier than date. Yeah, for, I'd, for, I'd, I'd 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 I kind of got this gut feeling that 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 it's going to be you know post twenty thirty five at best because I if I, there I, if there was no SpaceX, then right? that definitely wouldn't be happening at all. <laughs> twenty forty maybe. I mean, you can't yeah. do it. You cannot do it with the space launch system. You have to have like ten launches for a single mission and yeah. that rocket flies once a year at best for $2 billion. It's just, it's just he and Be Elon and Jeff Bezos are absolutely right. 
the foundation of any kind of a space program, any kind of a sustainable space program that's going anywhere is a low cost, heavy lift, reusable rocket. And so that's what they're both building. I mean, yeah, that, that yeah. is, that is the only answer for if you want to go past the moon is that because you've got to get so much propellant into orbit to go, you cannot do it with a launch once or twice a year of this Titanic you know, rocket that costs, you know, $2 billion and, and is entirely expendable. Yeah, I, I really, I really enjoyed your article a couple of weeks ago about the nuclear propulsion and, <laughs> and sticking that SLS, NASA's own numbers where it was like minimum of 10 launches, wasn't it just to get the fuel up for, yeah. for a mission like that? And you just, it's thinking, really not, it's, it's really absolutely not nuts. It's all doable. When they say, SLS is going to take us to Mars. And Dennis Muhlenberg was the CEO of Boeing a few years ago. He said, we're going to land on Mars in 2033 or some date. I'm not sure what he said, but it was something like that. And it's going to be a Boeing rocket that, that takes people there. I mean, it's, it's just not. You know, Orion is never going past the moon. SLS is not big enough and it costs too much. So, I mean, it's just, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, well, NASA's own numbers made that like absolutely yeah. blatantly, blatantly yeah. clear, didn't they? And so... But what that but but in that same report, NASA was suddenly betting quite heavily on nuclear propulsion as the means of getting to Mars and uh, and and around the solar system. And is that where NASA are diverging away from from SpaceX, or is that again just really just a sort of engineering chitter chatter? Engineering chitter chatter is a good way to put it. I think Musk is entirely cognizant of the mass challenges. Like he told me about a year ago that to have a sustainable human settlement on Mars, you would need to get 1 million tons to the surface of Mars. <laughs> okay. So that's, and, and so his bet, his bet on that is not to use nuclear propulsion, which saves you propellant cost. It's basically it cuts in half. His bet is just to make Starship so low cost and so efficient that getting that much mass into low earth orbit and then sending it to Mars becomes trivial. And so that's why the entire focus on Starship is making it ultra reusable, ultra low cost, um, as much mass as you can. Um, and you know, he's, he's spent 20 years almost now working toward that goal and he's taken important steps. The Falcon nine is this amazing rocket. Um, in terms of the cost is, you know, they bring the cost down and it flies, you know, they, they've flown them eight times now and they're still finding issues. Certainly as you, as you get deeper into the program with flying at eight, nine, 10 times, that's to be expected, but they're learning a lot of valuable lessons that they're trying to apply to starship. And his bet that if he is, if he can build them fast enough and he wants to build one a week and that sounded crazy until like they're building them every two weeks now. <laughs> yeah. um, so it doesn't, it's not as crazy as it seemed. And if you can really reuse these things 10 or 15 times, then you start to get to some economy of scale. And the bet from NASA is that that's not possible. They can't, they're not allowed to think that way. Um, so they, they're, they're looking at nuclear propulsion. So we'll see. I, I, hopefully one of the other gets people there in our lifetimes, Matt. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like, it's, it's good to have both systems, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we, you just talked about the Falcon 9 and, and one last question was the, the Falcon 9 that, that, that didn't make it to the boat the other week. And and I'm thinking about Block 5 and the turnaround and how quick they can get that. Is, is 
a few questions embedded in this. Is the turnaround getting quick enough for Elon Musk's liking? Was that no. uh, was that crash more significant than it seemed in terms of? Obviously, they they'll learn stuff from it. But is it is there any indication that that they that they can't turn around Falcon the the Block Five as quick as they would like, and and therefore really get into that area where reusability is massively a saving. I think that's a, those are both valid questions. Um, the, the fact of the matter is the turnaround time has come down dramatically for the Falcon 9. It's come down from about six months to 27 days. Hmm. Um, and for a program that's only two and a half years old, that's really pretty impressive <laughs> yeah. to me. Yeah. Um, and in terms of, of you know, getting the cost down for reuse, you know, I think they're well under $30 million now for a launch um, for their internal Starlink. They still have to build... The, um, the second stage, and there's still lots of testing and stuff that's done on the Falcon 9 first stage. But that's, you know, less than $30 million for that kind of capability is, is, again, pretty remarkable, and they can probably bring that down a little bit further. That's one of the reasons why he's pushed for Starship to be fully orbital. In terms of the technology, I think it's remarkable that they've done eight flights with these boosters um, and have had as few problems as they've had, because they're really pushing into unknown territory on these systems. Like they don't have anything to really measure this against um, in terms of, an, of a vertical rocket launch. So th there was the, the, the word on the, the, the problem you referenced, I think, which took place on February 15th, where the, the rocket missed the first stage, was that there was some heat damage to some part of the rocket. Um, but, you know, they're going to discover these issues and, and, if you discover them on a rocket that's already flown seven times and you get eight, seven or eight flights out of it, I mean, that's, that's great data. Um, and you sort of learn from that and you put it in your lessons learned pile and they've learned about using engine cleaning fluid on, on the Merlin engines. They'll learn other lessons, but you know, they're going to fly again this weekend. So it's like the, the fleet was down for 14 days, 15 days. I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's not too long, right? That's not too long. Bad. It's not too long. And and does it look as though his Starlink bet is paying off of 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 using his own cheap launch system to 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 get to launch a system that he may be able to get much us money out of to to finance other things? I am a I am I am not a Starlink expert at all, but it just does seem to me that he's way far ahead of everyone else because no one else has the launch capability he does. Um, you know, the OneWeb is paying, I don't know, 40 or 50 million for a Soyuz launch where they're getting 20 or 30 satellites into space. And for them, a, a, for them, a really good year would be like six to eight launches. Um, and SpaceX already has an operational constellation up there and they're adding, you know, 120 satellites a month to it. Um, and so I think that they'll be pretty far ahead that it'll be difficult for other players to come in the market. Maybe Bezos can afford to, to finance a competitive, competitive with Project Kuiper. Um, but, but they may end up, you know, the funny thing is they may end up buying launches on a Falcon 9 because Nuclean may not be ready or may not be cost effective. Um, it certainly probably won't have the capability to get as many other satellites up as they need it. So I think Starlink has a lot of potential. Um, and the, and the, the big thing for Musk what he did not have back in 2008 is now he can fail. Um, he can make mistakes and it's not existential for SpaceX. 
okay, a crew mission failure could be an existential failure right, for X for the company. But, but beyond that, like he can make mistakes with Starlink or Starship because not only is he the world's one of the world's wealthiest people, um, he can just, he can get capital on demand. Like there's private investors are clamoring to invest in SpaceX because they have all this growth potential and they have this great track record. So he has the resources to see these projects through. Like a few years ago, I was, my biggest question about Starship was, can they afford to do it? And now I don't have that question anymore because yeah, he can go raise a billion dollars tomorrow if he needs it. Yeah, I mean, he can almost raise a billion dollars just by tweeting. Yeah, he could, he could. He could say, you know, he could say, you know, investment round to support something and yeah. I know that everyone who's sort of used to your your journalism will, will know that the book's really well written, but it's such a great story. Where where can people get the book? When's it out? Uh, it's out March 2nd and it's it's available. It should be available at bookstores everywhere. Uh, it, it, I know it's going to be at Waterstones and other places in the UK. Um, you have the you have the UK edition. It's Amazon UK sells it. Um, but it's it's it should be everywhere. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. I like the fact, the fact that Jeff Bezos is selling the SpaceX book. It's good, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, is there an Audible version, by the way? Absolutely. Yeah. One of the fun things was a few months ago, um, the publisher sent me a list of five names as potential read narrators. I'm I'm a big. I've been an Audible customer for almost two decades. Love that. Love that service. So yeah. it was fun for me to pick a narrator for the book and it so it's rob shapiro and that'll be out day and date with um the hardcover awesome yeah i'm gonna definitely i'll get it on audible as well because I'm, I'm the same i love just listening to to books in the car and while commuting it's just i'm i'm mm. spend my entire day on zoom so the last thing i really need to do is is be looking at something and on yeah, the screen or i hear you anything. but so <laughs> absolutely and the great thing about elon musk and the fourth rocket like getting through is the fact that it's made space exciting again. I mean, thank God for Elon Musk in that in that sense. Because imagine yeah. if imagine if SpaceX didn't exist and it was still just the same boring, boring. It would be the industry would be a lot less industry interesting. Absolutely, and it's slower. He has been an f- absolute forcing function on space, and it's <laughs> Gwen. I was had an interview with Gwen at the end of December, and she basically said that you know. We don't, we don't, it's not our job to make other companies better. Or, Cause I was saying, I was, I was talking to her about like the, the pace of Starship just being outrageously fast compared to anything I'd ever seen before, the space industry had seen before. And, and she was like, she's like, well, that's good. You know, the industry, the space industry deserves better or the space community deserves better. And I think she's right. I mean, they, they've, they've been, whatever you think of Elon, his brashness or his, political views or the way he conducts himself he has unquestionably pushed space forward you know years and years and years yeah i mean he he's with, without a doubt i'm the most conflicted i've ever been about a single human being <laughs> i can't stand yeah. him and i worship him in equal measure i think he's you know he's amazing and ridiculous at the same time <laughs> inspiring and terrifying that's that's a good way to think yeah, about him, I yeah, think, yeah 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 ama- <laughs> amazing but yeah that that whole thing of just hammering to hammering bits of steel out in the <laughs> out in boca chica and and bunging it up in the air just seems just incredible doesn't it imagine it seeing is. that even five years ago it would have blown your mind but mm-hmm. no without a doubt thanks very much eric it's been genius as always 
I loved it, Matt. Nice talking to you again. You're listening to the Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. There we go. Ah, uh, love it. I love him. I've thoroughly enjoyed talking about Mars. Me too. And looking at Mars as well. Mars was just so beautiful in the night sky. I know, we've really been spoiled, haven't we? Been spoiled over the last year. I mean, not with some other things over the last 12 months. <laughs> I was going to say. But, but at least we could get to look at Mars. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the kind of solar system owes us one. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, defo, defo. Not that, not, that, not that the virus came from outer space. Or no. did it? Or did it? it we could have that as the new space. theme. Or did it? Or did it? Or did it? Chris, if people have enjoyed the podcast, what should they do? I think they should go to interplanetary.org.uk. That's a very good start. It is. And also, like and subscribe on their podcast aggregator. Mm, yes, that would be lovely. That would be nice too. That would be very, very nice. Delicious. And if you want to go one step further and join the fantastic people here on Discord... Uh, which is the Spodcats, the true Spodcats. We love you, Spodcats. Although you're all Spodcats, but the true Spodcats. Uh, you could go to patreon.com forward slash interplanetary or just follow the links from the website. There's always lots of pictures and bloggy stuff on the website too. So if if you missed something, all the info is on the website. Premium content. And so links, premium content, absolutely premium content. So, um, Chris, what are you doing? What are you doing this week? This week, I am teaching my ass off. So I'm going to be working every day teaching on Teams or Zoom or anything like that. But uh, on Friday, it's quite interesting because I'm going to be doing poetry workshops with children. And the subject they have chosen is perseverance. So we're going to be writing some, oh. pe- some poems about perseverance. So maybe we could get a chance to read one of them, what, what that, one of the, that one of the classes do. Oh, that's beautiful! Yeah, definitely do that. Yeah. That'd be awesome. That can be that. That can be their prize. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell them. I'll, I'll tell them that's what we'll do, and oh, I'm yes, sure they'll yeah. get very excited. Out on the inter- yeah, Little yeah. We'll prize. have to make Red sure we podcast. We have to watch our language on that particular episode. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, by the way, yeah. We I should mention that we that um, this this last couple of weeks we went over half a million. Half a million downloads. So amazing. That was a very Absolutely that amazing. was a very, very marvelous moment in the Sky in my at Night life. effect. Uh, and uh, yeah, and the Sky at Night magazine have put us as top pick. That's absolutely I'm having a wonderful time. Yes, you are. And what are you up to this week? Uh, uh this week I shall be teaching my Mars off. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I like what you did there. <laughs> uh <laughs> Uh, yeah, unfortunately, I, I shall be. Uh, it's exam week this week, so I've I've got to sort of. But then, but then it's half term, so I'm going to do. I'm going to try and do something special and 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 get on top of things. Yeah, do it, man. Um, get out there. Yeah, try and get on top of things. Uh, we've got some good interviews coming up, including with a space lawyer as well. Oh, exciting! So that's going to be fun. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah. I think that's it. We've got a nice long podcast there. Lovely. So I'm going to say bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, Spodcast. Bye, Spodcast. Bye, Spodcast. Bye, Spodcast. Bye, Spodcast. Bye, Spodcast. Bye, Spodcast. Bye. Bye.